when I say judgment, the judgment of God, not, not only what do you think, but what do you feel? What's the connotation to you of that statement? The judgment of God, of that phrase, I should say. And I've had various responses. But to me, it kinda, it's kind of terrifying. Um, and I'm betting most of you would agree with me. It's like a hammer. But the judgment of God cuts both ways. What about this judgment? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your master's pleasure, right? Wonderful. Wonderful. That makes me think of the judgment, essentially, at the end of this shows my age, although young, young folks are now, young folks, that shows my age, are now watching the old Star Wars movies um, as well. But the first, the first Star Wars episode, was it four? Is that a new hope? Anyway, at the very end with uh, Han Solo and Luke walking down to receive, in, in, in essence, the judgment of, of the Republic uh, by Princess Leia, putting the medals around their necks. Um, well done. That's what Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia here. They're a little church, but he's so pleased with them. And it's really extra, stands out a lot, kind of like a, a diamond surrounded by black as its background pops. Because you know the previous church we, we talked about was Sardis, the church five out of the seven. And they, you know, they were one of just two churches that they don't, there's nothing good said. There's no commendation to the church in Sardis. They look alive. They have a good reputation, but not in Jesus's eyes because he sees what's really going on. They're dead. So he says, wake up. And, and then the next church, Laodicea, the, the seventh of, of the seven, and then we continue on with the book of Revelation where things really get interesting. Um, it is just, it's, it's infamous in its horribleness. <laughs> it's um, maybe something like Sardis, but egregious in how it's so wealthy and it thinks it's doing fantastic, but it's, it's uh, you know, Jesus uses all the most. We'll talk about it next week, but wretched, poor, blind, pitiable, miserable. I mean, just, just horrible. So here's this church, Philadelphia. It's a little church. And by the looks, it's sort of the opposite of Sardis. Like by the looks of it, uh, and even and even by the, and the opposite of, of the not only church five of seven but church seven of seven the, the two churches that flank Philadelphia Sardis and Laodicea are kind of opposite this church um, they look great they're not great this church doesn't look great it looks you could look at it and sort of like the disciples coming on to the blind man and going okay who's sin this guy or his dad choose A or B those are your two choices Jesus and he's like C um, it's for my glory that this man was born blind what. No, no, no. Um, yeah, look at this church and say, okay, what are they doing wrong, Lord? Uh, there's no power. They don't have any power. They're small and unimpressive, probably few in number. Uh, and, and God's like, oh, you're small. And it seems like you don't have power. That's what everyone thinks. You don't have civic power. Because back then in the, ancient, in the ancient world, and still in much of the world today, um, you know, there was no division of church and state. You know, a lot of times if you had religious power, you had civic power and vice versa. And so the scholars think that they're, and you know, Jesus talks a fair amount about the Jews here. Um, the Jews were probably giving, um, who had not turned to Christ, uh, 
were probably giving this little church a hard time. And they had some power in the city of Philadelphia. They had some civic power. They had protection. They had wealth, no doubt, as well. And um, they had the rubber stamp of the empire. They, things were going swimmingly on the surface, as it seemed. They were getting the stamp of God, it seemed, his pr- approval and pleasure, these Jews, who were probably saying to this little church, hey, you know, you're following Christ. Look, you don't have any standing here. Surely you're doing something wrong. Uh you need to be obeying the law of Moses, et cetera, et cetera. And Jesus is saying, no, hold firmly to my gospel of free grace that I have, done, I have come to complete the law. I have come to bring not just Jew, but Gentile, anyone and everyone of any ethnicity, of male or female, young or old, egregious sinner or religious person. You're all alike, woefully inadequate, naked and miserable and blind in your own standing outside of Christ. But I have come to clothe you in the righteousness of God. Trust in me. Look to me. Know that I am the way back to the Father. That's the gospel. I lived for you. I kept the law for you. I pleased the Father for you. My life counts for you. My death counts for you. I died the death of a lawbreaker. I was cursed in your place. I absorbed your sin. I am the only way to the Father. No law keeping can get you there. No ethnicity can get you there. Don't believe the Jews. They say that they're mine. They're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. Wow. That is a strident accusation. But Jesus sees what is, and he calls it like it is. And so that's what he says to this little church. He gives them a good judgment. doesn't say anything. Uh, there's no rebuke to this church. It's just a beautiful commendation. And, hey, keep it up. Keep going. Persevere. Um, you know, Philadelphia, again, as we've been saying, you know, all the words tie into somehow to these churches, tie into the environment. And uh, we, we talked about that a little bit last week with Sardis and how she looked, you know, she looked like she was impregnable, but she wasn't. She was twice taken as a city. And that same thing happens to the church, really. Um, she's being lulled asleep by how she seems like she has a good reputation, but she's actually dead. Okay. So Philadelphia is similar in that um, it had been twice ruined and rebuilt with the help of the Roman Empire. And uh, I think it was on a fault line, and one, at least one of those was through an earthquake. And the second time, it had been renamed by Rome um, as Neo Caesarea, which means Caesar's new city. So, so there's this, this culture that this church has been planted in is uh, resonant with the idea that, you know, we owe what we owe to Caesar. He can give us a beauty and a permanence and establish us. The Roman Empire can, and Jesus is... His promises to this church play off that, and he's basically saying, look, I'm going to make you, I have the keys of David. I am their way in for the people of God to become a people of God and to come into God's presence. I will make you a pillar in his temple, you know, in his city, in the, in the new Jerusalem, in the new creation, basically, is, is what he's saying. He's, and so he's basically saying, look, Caesar can't give you permanence. The world can't give you permanence. Religion can't give you permanence and beauty. Even if it doesn't look like it, you're a small church with little power, but I can give you a place 
that will never fade away. We need to be living not just for this life, but for the next life, for the new creation, not just for these shadow lands, but for the solid lands that are coming under a swift, a far green country and a swift sunrise, right? Everything we're doing here is a deposit, a seed planted that will flourish in the new creation if it's for Christ. If it's for us, if it's for our reputation, if it's for our glory and our kingdom, it will perish. And so the, Jesus, I haven't even read the text yet. I, I meant to. Let me read it now, and then I'll just kind of maybe close with, <clears throat> with a word sort of to, 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 just, to just finish up what I just said about the promise because it seems a bit stiff and stilted and not that appealing, but um, let me try to make it to open it up a little bit, um, give it some flavor. So this is a long word. I think this may be the longest word. I'm not sure about that. Don't quote me. But uh, to any church of the of the seven, this is church six of seven, Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church, this is Revelation 3, 7. In Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one open. So he's the key master. Okay. He holds the keys that get all these take us back to revelation one, the picture of the risen Christ. He's saying, I hold the keys. This is, this is taken. I hold the keys of David. That's straight from Isaiah 22, 22. We won't go back there, but that's what John is lifting. He's lifting from that old Testament text. John does this anywhere between 400 and a thousand times. There are allusions uh, whether explicit or not, whether direct or not, to the Old Testament. So he's just basically reinterpreting God's scripture, the Old Testament, in light of God's word, his written word, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in light of his living word, his son, the second person of the Trinity become flesh, Jesus Christ. So he's taking that verse and he's saying, okay, Jesus, Jesus holds those keys. But he's more directly, Revelation 1, Jesus holds the keys of what? He holds the keys of death and hell. He has, through his life and death, defeated, proven by his resurrection, he's defeated what held us, what bound us, what imprisoned us, what made our lives meaningless, actually, and worse than meaningless, horrific, a nightmare. If death is the end for us, we are toast. But it's not, because Jesus exploded death from the inside by dying and defeating death. Um because he's the living one. He's God almighty and he can't be, he can't be, he can't be kept dead. <laughs> so he, he holds the keys. So if anyone dies and they're in Christ, he opens the door of death and hell and he brings us out. So death for us is simply a portal to a life that's never going to end where we're going to be with our King face to face. So, so he's the key master. Okay. Um, and that's what he says here to this church, Philadelphia. He reminds them that he's true, that he's holy, that he holds the keys, that he is the do- one who, he opens a door, can't be closed. He closes a door, it can't be open. Again, that, that really touches on, I think, um, the fact that he holds these keys to death and hell. He's opened the doors to these impregnable fortresses, okay? Verse 8, I won't comment as much. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one's able to shut. I know that you have but little power. This is a little church, right? And you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Bam. Yes. Behold, I will make of those. It's all about Jesus, guys. Who do you say that I am? Will we contend for him? Will we preach the gospel? Will we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Or will we count, will we bow? Will we bow to the pressures of religion? You know, doing this, doing that, adding to the gospel, taking away from the gospel. No, we have to, we have to obey this. We have to obey that. We have to do this to be a true Christian. We have to look this way. We have to, uh, or we can live how we want or whatever way we want to pervert the gospel. No, they haven't done it. 
They've contended. They've not denied his name. They've not been embarrassed about him. Behold, I will, and I will make those of the synagogue. And by the way, I'm embarrassed about Jesus a lot. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Forgive me, Lord. Cleanse me. Help me not to be. Help me to, as Paul said in Ephesians 6 and elsewhere, help me to boldly, to boldly preach the beauty of what you've done, Jesus. The beauty of what you've done, triune God, through the person of Christ and sending your son, Father, by the power of your spirit, doing what we could not do. Help us to be proud of the name of Jesus and to hold him forth. Okay, that's my prayer. All right, verse nine. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. So what is a true Jew? A true Jew, I mean, Paul tells us this over and over and over again in Galatians and Romans. Uh, a true Jew is one who is a son of God through faith in the son of God, Jesus. If you if you are an ethnic Jew and, and you deny Jesus as Messiah and you're relying on the law or your ethnicity, you are not a Jew. It's very clear here. Who say that they are Jews, but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Ha, Jesus has the final say, and they will learn that I have loved you. The only way to become a Jew is through Jesus. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. He's going to remove some, them from some suffering that's coming, although not from all. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And I think here, so I don't have to touch on it later. I think Jesus is saying here, not I'm coming soon. Did he mistake? Is he talking about the second coming? I don't know. Maybe. If he is, if he is, he's not saying, hey, it's been 2,000 years since he said I'm coming soon. Did he get it wrong? Two things there, briefly. One, no. John didn't get it wrong. Jesus didn't get it wrong. The next thing in the biblical timeline is the return of Christ. So to Jesus, to God, it is soon. It's the next thing. Okay, and to, and to God, a thousand years or as a day. Okay, there's no more big event. This is, this is the last days. This is the end times. We're in them now. They're not in the future. They're now. They're now. Go to, go, to Ephesians, go to Acts 2, verse 17. In these last days. We are in the last days. We're in the end times. We're in the age of the church, the age of the spirit. God's kingdom is going out through all the earth, through the gospel as it's proclaimed. His kingdom is being established as people come to know him and culture changes but evil's growing too. And then he will return and then he'll make all things new. He'll finish what he started. That's it. Okay. So, so the, in that sense, he is coming soon. It's the next thing, but also I'm coming soon. That word in the Greek can mean quickly. I'm coming quickly. It's going to be quick. It's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to surprise us all. And when he comes, it's going to be decisive and every knee is going to bow and he'll bring his own to himself and he'll judge everyone else truly. And for those that aren't hiding in him by faith, that is going to be a terrifying and a horrible horrible day. So flee to him now. Okay. So I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar. Here's the promise right to the end. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So it seems a bit stilted, not that appealing, at least to me. He who has an ear, it's like when C.S. Lewis describes in the weight of glory, when he describes glory as a, I don't want to, I don't want to be an elect, you know, an eternal living electric light bulb because luminosity is sort of all that struck him at first when he thought about glory and shiningness. But as he digs into the word, he understands that's not at all what's happening and it becomes very appealing. Same here. Okay. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. When you're in the word and something seems unappealing or something seems enigmatic or intractable. It's God's word. Trust it, dig in, put pressure on it, lean into it, meditate on it. 
pray about it. Seek other commentaries. Seek other wise people. Look at the rest of the scriptures. It'll open itself up to you, God willing, by his spirit. It'll be a beautiful thing. A lot of the hardest things are the best things. They yield the most calorie content and the most beauty if we'll trust the Lord and press in and know that the problem is on our side, not on his. Okay. So that's here. So it seems stilted. He's, you know, we're going to be basically here. Let me just simplify it. Not a full explanation, but you know, you're in a beautiful, it helps. You're in a, you're in chart. chart. How do I, we have a French member of our congregation that helps me with this word, but Chartres, Chartres. No, not, you can't pronounce the S. Chartres. C-H-A-R-T-A-R, let's see. A-R-T-R-E-S, Chartres, yeah, Chartres, Cathedral in southern France, Notre Dame, Mont Saint-Michel, these amazing, I mean, pick one that's not French, you know, the Cathedral at York, Canterbury, um, the Vatican, St. Paul outside the wall in Rome, Right, I mean, so many European St. Patrick's on Fifth Avenue in New York, Manhattan. So many beautiful cathedrals. These cathedrals, these pillars in these cathedrals, these flying buttresses. You know, a pillar is is a staple of a cathedral. The King's College. There's another one, right? King's College, Oxford. King's College, Cambridge. Um, these pillars are absolutely amazing. They're beautiful and they hold up. They hold up the cathedral. They're integral. They're not just flourishes. And God is saying, I am going to, this cathedral, this temple, is a, it's a picture of where he, he's going to live, his home. And, and it's a picture of a cosmos, his, his, his home. In the Old Testament, he lived in the temple. And so the, in the, we have these pictures in the Old and the New Testament of of. The, the all of creation being a temple. And that's, that comes from Genesis um, 1 and 2, right? It comes from Genesis 1 and 2. There's a reason there are parallels between the seven days of creation and the seven days of the, of the, um, of the um, what's the word? The commemoration, as it were, the inauguration, the dedication, I think that's the word I was looking for, of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings. There's seven days for that as well, and they parallel the seven days of creation because God made all creation to be a temple. What does that mean? It meant a place for his presence. He, he intended for all creation to be a place where he dwelled with us, with us as his image bearers, spreading his image and his presence as he reigned in and through us and walked with us and talked with us throughout the earth, right? Sin made that not happen. Sin made the earth a silent planet, as C.S. Lewis called it. And I'm not sure he was the first to do that, but he appropriated that for his space trilogy. But Jesus came to start restoring that. He came to bring heaven back down to earth. And when he comes again, he's really actually physically going to do it. He's going to bring all of heaven back down. Our final destination is not heaven. It's earth. It's a remade earth, a remade creation, a remade cosmos, where the two dimensions of heaven and earth are going to be reunited through the work of the, of the triune God. And he's going to, Jesus is going to come down bodily as the God man, as king of the cosmos. He has given himself for us and he's going to reign with us forever. And this earth and this cosmos will be his temple. And we will be, what he's saying here is, hey, you little church that has no reputation and no power, I'm going to give you, hold to me, 
conquer. Continue to put forward my name. Don't be ashamed of me. Hold to the gospel. Preach the gospel in word and deed. And I will give you a place that is integral to the holding up of my new creation. It's going to be, you're going to have an integral place that will never be taken away. Caesar may have rebuilt the city that you're in. I'm going to rebuild creation and you're going to be an integral part of it forever. How about that? Is that appealing? Because that's what he's saying. Live for that. God bless you.